0: Welcome to another episode of the Bluecoats Brass Podcast. Joining Derek and I this week, we've got a former DCI judge and now director of the Cavaliers, Monty Mast. But before we get to our interview with Monty, I wanted to remind everyone that voting for round 2B has now started for our Best Bluecoats Ballad Contest. We've got 2008's The Boxer going up against 2016's Great Gig in the Sky, and then we've got 2015's Woods competing against 2011's Creep. Be sure to get your vote in for round 2B by Sunday, July 5th. You can vote at bluco.at slash ballad2b, or you can go to the link in the episode description or on the Bluecoats Brass podcast webpage. On our webpage, you can also see the full bracket as well as the breakdown of votes for each round. During our recording of this episode, we had a few audio-level issues. I tried to fix as much as I could during the editing process, but I will go ahead and apologize in advance. All right, so let's go ahead and get into this week's topic with our guest, Monty Mast. Monty is currently the director for the Cavaliers Drum and Bugle Corps. He's a longtime DCI judge, but most importantly, he's an alumni of the Bluecoats. So, Monty, can you tell us uh, a little bit about when you marched and what you played?
1: I started with the Memorial Day camp in 1981. I showed up uh, Saturday morning and just kind of on a a whim and uh, a couple of friends that I knew said, Hey, you ought to come down and, and join. And I said, well, let's go down and check it out. My parents took me down. I was, uh, had just graduated from Norton high school, just up the road and, uh, went down and they handed me a two valve old's bugle (laughs) and said, can you play an F scale? So I said, yeah, I know the F scale and play the F scale. And they said, can you do it two octaves? And so I played it two octaves and they said, okay, go down into spot number six. We have our other lead that we're looking for in the uh, soprano section. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So that was pretty much it. I was so ill prepared for that camp that, uh, after a few minutes, my parents kind of and I got together on the first break and said, do you want to do this? And said, yeah, let's let's give it a shot. And uh, they had to go to the store and buy me a sleeping bag because I didn't own one. And so I joined the Corps in 81 and then was in the Corps in 82 as well. Was one of the soloists for Carnival for for that show. And then the Corps went inactive in 83. And uh, there were a group of us, Frank Pascarella John Kowal, Joe Hickey, a few other people in the area who had gone out to uh, Phantom Regiment. So I marched Phantom Regiment in 1984. Awesome.
0: What would you say was your best memory while you were at the Bluecoats? Probably 81,
1: winning the Class A title with the U.S. Open. I had, my aunt lived literally around the corner from Harding High School in Marion. So I would always go over and stay with her and watch The U.S. Open, so winning that show and getting the the little medal from
0: it was pretty cool. Awesome! I I remember marching that show as well as a few years afterwards, though. (laughs) 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 So this week we wanted to discuss uh, two main topics around the world of brass adjudication, and the first we want to talk about is, is sort of what it's like from the brass adjudicator's point of view during a show, and then later in the episode. We'll talk a little bit more about the critique side of things and and what the different brass staffs do with the information that we receive uh, from the judges. So let's go ahead and start with um, talking about it from your point of view. First off, how long were you a judge for DCI?
1: I started my trialing in 1997. I went through the process. I had spent the previous three previous three years on the phantom regiment brass staff and i got married in 1997 and decided you know that's probably not going to work to be on tour an entire summer especially back then when most brass staffs were somewhere between six and eight staff members and you were pretty much on the entire summer right um so that really wasn't going to be in the cards and so um, one of my close friends who I went to the University of Akron with was Glenn Fugit and uh, had worked with Glenn in Corpus Christi for four years and got into Drum Corps Midwest as a judge and did my trialing there, did the DCIA judges college in 2000 in Maryland in College Park and judged all the way through the 1997 season or the two. 2017 season. So basically 20 years.
0: Wow. As you just said, your last year as a judge in DCI was in 2017. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how adjudication has evolved during your 20 years of judging? We did kind of did a podcast with
1: the Cavaliers, Randy Asoda and I and the brass staff with the members um, Thursday night. And we guessed that we went through seven iterations of a judging system during that time. There were small tweaks. Um, the brass caption has probably stayed the most consistent compared to music ensemble shifting to music analysis and the philosophy of music effect and a more holistic approach to effect. Brass, I mean, playing in tune and in time is hasn't changed small things have changed the use of uh, physical demands, the concept of evaluating environmental demand from the field. Um, Those are little tweaks to the system. I never, I never judged during the the old tick system um, that I, I marched during that era, but I never uh, judged that system. And then The year after I got out of judging was when they pulled the judges off of the field. So I never really had to experience that um, where you were restricted into, you know, the six yards onto the field or so to speak. Right.
2: Do you remember when they went from um, uh, one side of the box being musicianship and the other side of the box being technique to content and achievement?
1: That's the that was the holistic change within the judging system. Yeah, right. I think you know because before you you could go through and you you had that challenge of musicianship versus technical excellence, uh, and now that's inherent in both sides of the sheet. Where before the what and the how, which is the way the sheet is constructed now, was supposed to be inherent in both musicianship and technical excellence. Now that was flipped. Um, but it, I'm not sure it really, it, it changed the lens it, through which we judge, but we on the field, we're, we're supposed to be doing most of it anyway. It just, the the verbiage changed quite a bit. And then plus we went from a sheet that had a kind of a, checkbox rubric on the back to now guiding questions you know did that really change the philosophy not much but it it really helped as a judge being able to hone in on certain things
0: talking about the the brass sheet specifically what exactly at least as it stands now what exactly is is the judge looking for or listening for
1: Well, if you look at the sheet, um, the current sheet, you've got content on the left side and and achievement on the right instead of the top box, bottom box that we used to always comment on. So you're looking at how the performers display the technical and musical aspects of the book. Um, What is written? So you're looking at it from that standpoint. You're also evaluating the balance of those skills, the, the variety of those skills. I think one of the things that in terms of a content is if you just hone in on one aspect, like articulation, you're probably not going to use the same articulation in an aggressive angular piece of music as you are in the ballad. And if you are using the same articulation, you're probably not showing off an appropriate skill range. So I think that's one of the things that's in there. But I think the other part of it is, is the simultaneous responsibilities. What are you doing while you have to do that? Playing a ballad and doing rubato when you're at a eight step interval is much harder to do when you're standing on top of each other and in a very tight clump of, of performers. So, you have to take that into consideration, what those elements are. And then the achievement side is the performer. You know, what, do you, what did you do? was it together. Are you demonstrating a consistency in sound? You know, there are different approaches to brass tone quality, but most importantly on the brass sheet, it's consistency of quality of tone. So you, you may have a personal preference as a judge that if you if it was your ensemble, you would do it a certain way. You have to kind of divorce that a little bit when you're a judge and say, okay, maybe that's not the way I would do it, but are they doing it consistently together? And is the training being demonstrated that they're approaching it the same way?
0: What are some misconceptions you think that that fans often have about brass adjudication? I I think the most common
1: one is if a core has a ensemble tear during the performance, does the brass judge even realize that depending on where they are in the field? Because there are a lot of times that as a brass judge, you know something's wrong because the performers tell you that something's wrong. you sense it, they back off. They know something's wrong. I may not know what the issue is. Maybe it's a tear between the the high brass and the battery. Well, I'm not listening to the battery. I'm not even they're not part of my score sheet, so I'm not even thinking about what they are, but I can sense it from the brass that something is not correct um, from that standpoint. And After the show, you see the comments, how could the brass judge score them when they had all of those terrors in the performance? Well, it didn't affect the brass sheet and what the lens that we're looking through, through that. Um, So it's making sure that you stick to your own caption. And it's a lot easier on the field to stick to your caption than it is upstairs because you get a little bit more of a bleed um because you're you're looking at the the show holistically in effect and analysis where if you're looking at the brass caption you're only looking at the brass performers you know the the only thing i know about the color guard is were they in my way or
0: not (laughs) (laughs) yeah i i think the the opposite way of that that I've experienced, you know, obviously I'm not a a judge in DCI, but for BOA and things like that is, you know, getting to hear a group from far away up top when you're judging up top and you're like, oh, it sounds really good and everything. And so you have this perception and, you know, like with BOA say, if like prelims I'm judging up top and then um, finals I'm judging down on the field and you have this notion of what to expect based on what you heard up top. And then in finals you go down on the field and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is what's going on down here.
1: And I also think that the element of electronics has changed that aspect and really can with with certain groups change that dramatically because you're hearing a rebalanced sound or you're hearing key performers through that sound as opposed to. Yeah, when you're hearing all six, twelve, or sixteen melophones and you're sampling them individually and in small groups, you can hear the the difference between the best and the weakest player. Where upstairs, you don't necessarily pick up on that unless it's very obvious. And I think that's one of the things, and and I think that's been the biggest challenge with uh, brass education over the years is now you know, the concept has always been judge the acoustic brass sound. Well, now how can you do that? I mean, to me, one of the the first shows that was like, uh, how do you do this was, you know, the jagged stage in the middle of the field with blue coats because you, how could you get out onto the field to adjudicate that? Plus you had two speakers on the either side of the ramp. So you couldn't kind of stand in front of the ramp because you were hearing the amplified sound too. And for years, the percussion judge has, they've always charted shows. Okay, they'd watch videos and they go, okay, here's how I can get from the front ensemble to the battery and back and forth. And if I don't go through this time, I'll never get back there because the form collapses and it's not safe. Well, starting about, you know, 2012, 2013, brass judges started watching shows to chart how they could get there, you know, how they could get into certain places so they could avoid, uh, standing in front of a speaker.
0: Right. And
1: and being impacted by that.
0: Yeah. So, uh, you, you talked a little bit about this, but can you talk about how hard it is as a judge? You know, especially for for DCI, you're not always judging the same, th- or you're rarely judging the same thing night after night, um, going back and forth between being down on the field and being up in the box. I think
1: you have to have the ability to change change lenses every time you go to a different caption. When you're on the field, you're I'm only focusing on brass. Well, then when I get up to music analysis. Then I am looking at a show, trying to pick it apart. How how is it put together? I'm looking at construction and design. And then how well did you achieve it? Where in effect, I'm just, I'm reacting and then figuring out how you got to that point. So the, the two upstairs captions are almost opposite approaches, where one is very analytical, very driven by the detail and the depth of construction and how you put it together. The other one is, Hey, did it work? Was it fun? Um, If you wanted me to feel uncomfortable during that section, did I feel uncomfortable? If you wanted me to, you know, jump up and down and go, yay team during that time, did you achieve that? And, and so I think the those approaches are very different when you're looking at the sheet and you know, as a result, there are times you have a, a group during a season you go, and I love judging a, this group in this caption. They're not as fun to judge in this caption just because of their show design and construction.
0: Yeah,
2: I'm looking at the judge's manual from last year because a lot of what you're talking about, we discussed a lot in San Antonio, and I was looking for a specific part. I found one of them. One is, um, and I'd be curious to hear your opinion on this, Monty, when you look at the, well, really, really either side, but the content side I think is the one that's more argued about. When you look at the different bullet points, do you grade those equally or is there there's some, you know, It's we've talked about this a lot and I hope it gets cleared up. There was some language in the manual talk about the hierarchy of demand uh, or hierarchy of content. And it was, you know, it kind of put the music, over the uh, physical demands and environmental demands, and there is a bit of an inconsistency of, of how to interpret that. Um, you know, so there's uh, Gary Markham talking about, "Look, it's a music sheet," you know, uh, and then there's some others who are like really emphasizing simultaneous responsibilities. Uh, i was curious as to what your opinion is that and, and what were conversations like about this subject when you were judging.
1: Um, it it was always an evolving, uh, discussion because I'm not sure everybody can get to that same answer. Um, although we try to achieve, um, a consistency with it, you know, what, what is our primary role is judging something musical. Um, and, you know, the environmental demands or the, um, physical responsibilities. Ultimately, I, I think there were a lot of discussions. Is those should be more used as separators when you have two comparable groups yeah. um, in achievement, uh, and every core has a different approach to that. <laughs> and, and so, I think from the instructors, there there are people that want to push. Um, what will benefit their organization the most. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, oh, yeah.
1: So it is a challenge. Uh, yeah. I mean, when you're processing all of this in real time and you're having to comment on, you know, 52 different things in in that show, how how do you process and what do you prioritize? And I think that is a part of why... It is so hard to judge um, at the upper echelon of any activity, right. you know, whether it's figure skating or 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 the NFL, DCI judging and BOA and WGI judging at the upper echelon of the activity is it is difficult because the groups are so good that you are literally splitting hairs on a constant basis.
2: Yeah. And, you know, the brass in particular, it's very read dependent and very um, performance-dependent. I mean, probably the greatest uh, variable from night to night should be performance. Absolutely. Well,
1: I I think one of the things is if you're seeing a group, um, a a lot of groups with show design have – you know, let's say you have a trumpet feature on the A side 35 followed by a baritone feature on the B side 35. If I'm doing my job as a brass judge, I'm only hearing one of those two and I can only intelligently comment on one of those two. Right. On one night, I might be in front of the group that nailed it. Yeah. On the next night, I might be in front of the group that it was not their night. Right. So therefore you know, that, that score should have some variable in it, but that's only one element of the show. That's only, you know, 15 seconds of the show. So how does that figure into, was that an eight, four or an eight, five?
2: Yeah. Right. One of the things that we ran into last year with a few uh, judges was and we had, we had places where we played and moved and we had other places where we didn't. And it was as if we were getting punished for the times that we were not playing, you know, and it was, um. well, I can't give you much credit here. I don't think he really said it that clearly. I can't give you much credit, but you can read between the lines. I remember thinking like, you know, when goes to see Hamilton or Les Mis and love the choreography, but say, you know, on my, on my own, I'm not digging it. Cause all she did was stand there and sing. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. No one ever thinks that. So I, I, there's a part of me that's like, can't we sometimes just stand and be awesome? if that is what seems to be what the show calls for because sometimes it's moving around is just for the sake of it, but you know, we can get in the weeds real quick, but that, that was just, to be honest, one of the things that came up for us uh, last year. I know this isn't like critique, but I'm just, you know, (laughs) wondering what your experience was with that.
1: Well, and I think that's that when you are going through the process of, of adjudication, it's rank, Rate, educate, um, and so you. The first thing is your your first priority is to get the groups in the right order. The second is to rate them effectively. So, are do you have an eight five and eight four, and then the next group is a seven three? Where you put those numbers tells a lot. Um, with that in mind, the value of the tenth is those minuscule impressions until you get to where you're at the four tenth range where you better have one thing that you can clearly identify that separates two ensembles in your caption. I think that's a huge tenet of our our judging system is how do you value the the differences between groups and um In the brass caption, generally, we were told you know it's about music primarily
2: okay. um
1: those those physical things should be secondary right they're they're obviously very important and they have a huge impact right because you know if you're standing standing where you have all twenty four trumpets within you know 10 yards and you're very tight spacing, it's really easy to hear. The timing is relatively simple to deal with, but when you've got the, that same group of 24 performers spread out over 45 yards, that's a totally different challenge, even though that the individual challenge of playing the technique is the same.
2: Yeah.
0: So have you ever been nervous about judging any specific shows for any reason?
1: Well, uh, I'm I'm kind of in the camp of uh, Itzhak Perlman that if I'm not nervous, it means it doesn't mean anything to me, and I should put my instrument in my case and never play it again. I think it's the same way as a judge. If you're not, if you don't have feelings about going out and doing a good job, and feel a little bit of that self-imposed pressure on yourself then you're probably, it's probably not for you. Jeff Mitchell, who was one of my mentor judges from back in the day, told me one thing. And he said, uh, "You'll, you'll survive as a judge if you do one thing, never make it about you. If you always focus and make sure it's about the performers, it's about giving good information to the staff and doing the right thing, you'll be fine. The minute you make it about you, you're done. You're just not effective anymore.
2: I have a question. Another. I'm, I'm going to go off script here, Bob. I'm going to hijack the thing. <laughs> <laughs> Bob has his list of questions. <laughs> um, what is the gutsiest call you made? Like somebody hasn't been up and you put them up because you thought that was it. And you were scared that you were going to get called out for it.
1: Well, Uh, I do do remember one show specifically. Um, I made a call where I, that was the first time that this particular core had ever been ahead of another core in a subcaption in history. And, you know, I thought and just sat there and thought, Okay. Did I overreact? Am I underreacting? And I made the call. Um, and it turned out that, you know, yes, I was first, but, um, the next night and a couple days later, everybody else was saying, yeah, you were the right, you were doing the right thing. I also remember that critique because that was probably one of my more uncomfortable critiques. (laughs) Um, and because, uh, in that critique, there was a discussion about, well, do you realize that we've been beating this core by X amount or whatever? And, uh, they said, well, what does that mean? What does that tell you? You know, they were trying to say that maybe I was wrong. And I said, well, I guess it proves I don't read recaps. Um, and that (laughs) didn't go over real well. Um, and I heard about that later, but, (laughs) uh, I think that is one of the things that, uh, You know, you have to have enough confidence based on evaluating the criteria you have to do. Ultimately, if I don't in my heart of hearts, don't make that call because that's what I believe in, then I failed. I failed the course. I failed the system. And sometimes that means going against the grain a little bit. You know, and I've done that on occasion. And then other times, you know, I went. I think I'm overreacting to something here because I got a little fixated on one aspect of a show. And, and I said, I I don't feel like I'm judging correctly through time or I'm letting a 30 second segment of the show color the whole 11 plus minutes.
2: Yeah. And WGI talk about uh, uh, pet peeves and preferences a lot as far as how to judge uh, I found that uh, very helpful when I went through some of that training. And and I try to bring that up in critique with other judges when I feel like that they, as an example, they judge uh, analysis and they only talk about vertical alignment. And I think, you know,
1: that's one of the things that um, you will get different reads from different judges. Early in my career, I was working uh, with Andy Poore, and who was uh, the one of the caption leads for DCI at that time. And Andy hears very much in the vertical uh, harmonic structure. I mean, he can go through and tell you how many key changes on a first read and all this kind of stuff. I, I struggled to pick up that where personally I can tell you how many layers and lines I hear more of the horizontal construction from that standpoint. That's just the way my background is. And so after the show here, Andy and I are talking and, Oh, I didn't pick up on that. and he picked up on this and I didn't pick up on it. And we were, you know, I was trial judging and doing the same thing. It's interesting. And it showed me where my deficiencies were and what I had to work on. And, it, but it also pointed out what I do here well. Mm-hmm.
0: So last question on this first half is, what would you say is the most important thing that marching members should understand about the brass adjudication sheets?
1: That from the sheet standpoint, I think it is more so what, what we're trying to do. We are trying to give you as much credit as we can. We're not starting at a hundred points and tearing it down. We're trying to give you credit for what you do, and I kind of call it the judge meter. You start out and you're going, "You're okay, let's go." And you start, and you go, "Oh, okay," and it kind of rises, and then something happens, and you go, ooh, "Ah," ooh. and you go through that kind of ebb and flow the whole show, and then you go back, and then you put it in time. How many times was I up? How many times was I down? Okay, here, based on the what, the how, the musicianship, the technical excellence, the responsibilities, everything, okay, you're mid-box four. Where are you in mid-box four? And you go back and you go through that analysis process. But we go into every show wanting you as performers to have a great show. Uh, it makes our job a whole lot easier to be very honest. We want you to be successful because ultimately every judge is a fan of the activity. And then, especially when we're in a contest where we know it's going to be a tough call for us, you know, it's great when you guys determine it for us where we don't have to go back and, you you know, you certainly hope that It's all because somebody stepped up more than somebody else that rather than somebody just had an off performance. But, uh, you know, again, we want you to be successful. Awesome.
0: Well, before we continue our discussion, let's take a quick break to hear from a couple of our sponsors. Ammon design is the exclusive mouthpiece manufacturer for the blue coats. Carl Hammond is recognized by players all over the world for his commitment to excellence through superior craftsmanship and professionalism. That's why Bluecoats trust Hammond and why we feel you should get the experience of sound in HD. Visit CarlHammondDesign.com to get started. That's Carl with a K, HammondDesign.com. This podcast is funded in part by the sustaining members of The Shield. The Shield is a monthly giving society dedicated to protecting the future of Bluecoats. Donors give monthly and support Bluecoats programs, and as a thank you, they receive insider access to content and special events. To become a sustaining member, visit bluecoats.com slash the shield. All right, so now let's talk about the other side of brass adjudication, which is the critique. And for those that don't know, critiques usually happen after each show for about the first half of the season or so, uh, where the staff of each corps gets a chance to talk with each, each of the judges for a few minutes to get additional feedback or if they have any questions based on their tape. And most of the time they're relatively calm, but every now and then things get a little feisty and you, you sort of said something about that when you had to make that call before Monty. So first of all, what are your general thoughts on the critique process?
1: I have no problem with going into a critique process. I think uh, there is some accountability and I, it's also a way for me as a judge to have a dialogue with a human being. I mean, you realize that we're talking for 13 minutes onto a tape recorder um, or electronic device now. So we really don't get to interact with anyone in that process. And I think it, it's one of those parts of the process where when I get into critique, I get to know another person so that they can ask a question of me. Hey, we, we didn't understand what you meant by this, whatever the case was. But that way we learn about each other as human beings. And so that way when, the, when questions come up, it, it's there. There is a bit of a more personal relationship in that process. It's not just me giving my thoughts for 13 minutes on to a recording.
0: Yeah. So, Derek, as a caption head, what are your thoughts on the critique process?
2: I, I do not enjoy critique, and, and <laughs> it's, it's not really anything to do with uh, the judges. Um, you know I think by and large, people are are pretty. Well educated in the judging world, I think there can be better training. There always be better training, of course. But the reason why I don't like critique is it's just it's a personal reason. I, I, uh, what you're supposed to do in critique is advocate for your team, talk about how great you are, basically, and kind of imply quite oftenly through that, kind of like an advertisement that says we have no preservatives. What you're implying is someone else does, and you spend <laughs> your time implying that other teams aren't as good. And that is exactly the opposite from my personality. Uh, I'm my own worst critic, and when I watch other drum corps, I like to be a fan and go, oh, "Man, that was awesome." And so, I, for critique for that five minutes, I have to go in there and not be my own worst critic and not be a fan of Blue Devils or Carolina Crown, which I am. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, I, I love watching those groups, and I, and I can be in all those groups, and then I got to talk about why we should beat those groups. And it's difficult for me, just personally. And I've always, I've said it to you, Bob. I'm sure I'm, I've said it like on the bus. I'm like, I hate going to critique because it has nothing. Again, it has <laughs> nothing to do with with the judges. It has everything to do with the, with this um, with the game. At that point, for me, is not um, as fun in, in a way.
1: And I think that's part of making critiques productive is the process from my end is so one-sided i'm telling you and then i think the most productive critiques are when you when you come in and you say okay on this part of the the recording you said this Mm -hmm. what did you i didn't understand what you meant by that or one of one of the things that you commented on let me explain in greater detail because you were confused. That's more of an effect kind of thing than a brass performance kind of thing. Um, But it is interesting because if somebody comes in and all they want to talk about is, you know, we should be four tenths ahead and you only had us two tenths ahead or whatever the case is, those critiques are, are admittedly pretty much a waste of time. If there is an opening, you know, dialogue of clarifying or even saying, I have no problem with a core coming in and saying, Hey, we appreciate you commented on all of this. We didn't hear you comment on X, Y, and Z. Okay. You spent most of your time commenting on something, you know, let's say you really spent a lot of time on your tape talking about, um, articulation and style and idiomatic consistency and whatever, but you rarely talked about our phrasing. And that's something that we've been re- really hammering. Make sure, you know, there's a dialogue in there. Make sure that the next time you see us, that you're recognizing what we do in that area.
0: Yeah. We've, we've got a pretty extensive process that, that we use, at least with the brass at Blue Coats, And I, I won't go into that now, but everything you're talking about trying to make sure that things are being covered we have a a system in place with a lot of people to help with whoever goes into critique for our staff some people that aren't even on the road helping just getting all that stuff organized and everything like that and and i, I think it's helped you know I, I think we're also becoming better teachers we're getting good kids and things like that but you know, we've had some success for for a little while now, and and I think some of that is the the process we use for critique and everything. So, so Derek, can you talk a little bit about uh, what it's like getting contrasting information from judges from night to night?
2: I don't mind it, and I re- you know I I, I kind of I, I shouldn't say I don't mind it, but I understand it. I actually get more upset when someone says the same thing, sometimes the same verbiage, because then I feel like there's van talk. Uh, and uh, or groupthink. I'm much more worried about judges going into groupthink than I am worried about judges being inconsistent. And I also, I, I, I'm probably someone in the minority of staff who who believe that. But um, you know, it, it should be from night to night, and there should be you know rewards for an exceptional performance and some punishment for an except for not a good performance for that group. Um, so yeah i mean it depends on (laughs) depends on which one was right and which one was wrong how's that (laughs) 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 you know it 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 should be about the subject matter you know and and every comment that we get uh, especially negative ones first thing we ask is well, do we agree with that you know and if we do then yeah he's right we should probably take a look at that and if we don't we can either try to try to educate the judge or, or point them in a different uh, direction or stay true to our guns. I mean, sometimes, um, you know, so, sometimes you're going to disappoint someone if they're listening to a piece of music and some judges think it should be more rubato and some people think it shouldn't be. Um, you have to make a choice and someone's going to be disappointed and that's, and that's okay. I mean, it's um, we have the same issue within staff uh, where people have different interpretations. I mean, essentially... Every show has about 15 conductors, you know, while an orchestra will just have one conductor and one interpretation. So there's, there's a lot of give and take and, and compromise in that. So, sorry, there's a bit of a long drawn out answer for that, but there's a lot of, you know, there's, um, we take, um, uh, whatever feedback and see if we agree with it and, and go from there.
0: So how does that feedback you get, um, affect your planning for rehearsals like the next day or a few days down?
2: Well, what we do is, um, and generally we have people at, who are not on the road do this. You alluded to this earlier, Bob. We uh, have every uh, bullet point on the sheet. And we, whenever the judge makes a comment, positive or negative, we put a tick next to that bullet point. So we can see this guy made 12 comments on articulation and zero comments on tone or on the content side no comments on environmental demand and lots of comments on variety of technique or whatever. And uh, so we can go in there and say, hey, what about our environmental demand? Same thing that you talked about earlier, Monty. And then below that, uh, the person will write all negative comments. Whatever negative comment the judge has made, just write them down so they're documented. And we, it's on Slack, so anybody can go look at it. Um, and uh, I have... Some years I've done this, some years I haven't. Uh, have a spreadsheet with all the chunks in the show and then plug in those negative comments into the chunk on on a, just on a on a spreadsheet and kind of overlay the spreadsheets on top of each other from night to night of graph performance or one night the different things and you God, and you can notice that you maybe and you won't notice this if you don't do this we keep getting called out at set 92 next day we'll work on set 92 you know you know, so it, it is as much as, you know, people will like to sometimes you, you hear around the the, uh, the staffs and everything, people complaining about, oh, I can't believe someone so said this. We do still value people who don't, who aren't with the show every day, what their impressions are. And especially when spring training we were there for almost over a month and then we put it in front of other people. We've heard the same, you know, that, concert G may have been 20 cents sharp for days. We didn't hear it anymore. You know, it would take someone else who hasn't heard it to go in and go, God, that's not in tune. You know, or or whatever. And it's we, you know, it really helps us um you're playing for the next day.
1: And I think that's a huge thing for an educator, you realize that is you know, you've been working on it, you've been intimately involved in those details. And so you're projecting what you think should be happening. And then as a judge, you come in and you're giving a, a first read unbiased opinion of, and I don't know that that's what your goal is necessarily, unless you're achieving it in the performance. And I'm going, what, what's this section of the show about? I don't get what the phrasing is. I don't get, what you're trying to do and then you go oh wait a minute I remember we had a uh, we were on tour a few years ago with a particular drum corps and and uh, uh, Lee Carlson and I were judging a fact and the staff came into critique and said wait a minute can we ask you to do something for us and they said okay we want you to describe what you think our show is about. And so Lee and I went through it and they kind of shook their head and said, that's what we keep getting hearing from judges. And we think our show is about this. And Lee and I looked at each other and went, we didn't get that at all. And so their comment was, should we shift our opinion about our show and make it to what we are achieving and what everybody's impression of it is, or stick with the original plan. And I thought that was a pretty perceptive comment from that particular drum corps because they they were achieving something they didn't think that they were, and they were hoping to achieve something else. So I think it is, you know, part of that process is figuring out what is it that we're actually doing.
0: Yeah. So Derek, would you say that, you know, when we get the sheets that say who's judging what on what night and everything like that, do you ever look at trying to make minor adjustments to appeal to the judge that you know you'll be seeing that night?
2: I wouldn't say on paper, but yes, to a certain extent, from from a, a mental game from the kids. I, I, I know that, I mean, I don't mind naming names. I know that John Bell likes things really exciting. Like he just wants it to be energetic and intense. So, I mean, if John Bell's judge effect, I might just get them more hyped, you know? And, um, you know, if, if someone on the brass is a little bit more of a kind of a ticker, you know, he just goes around just counting how many times you crack. I, I might tell the kids that, you know, and they might have a slightly more controlled show that night. There's, there's a certain amount of, I mean, especially once the rehearsal is done, It's all about the mental um, and emotional preparation for the kids. And I have, yes, taken into account who's judging that night on how I prepare the kids mentally and emotionally.
0: So here's a question for each one of you is what happens when you completely disagree with something that you're being told? So, you know, Derek, if you hear a comment from a judge that you disagree with or Monty, you hear a staff member saying it's, it's this, this is what's happening. And, and you totally disagree. So for whoever wants to go first, you know, what happens when you completely disagree with something that you're being told?
2: Anytime there's a big disagreement, the first thing I think is my responsibility to do is to consider maybe I'm missing something. Perhaps that person is right. And I try to uh, divorce myself from any type of preconceived notions. And just for a second, you know, at least try to consider the other person's, uh, opinion. And if I come back around and go, no, this is, I really do believe this should be this way. Uh, I mean, the first thing, if there's a critique that night is just explain to him. So I disagreed when you, when you said this, I feel like it should be this. Maybe you say something like that in a calm way. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. And, um, lots of times, um, you get to the other side and, and you both learn something. That's the, that's the, uh, the goal. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, And and sometimes it's, you know, maybe, maybe the judge didn't hear the source material or, you know, or maybe I didn't think of it in a certain way or I misinterpreted what he said. So, yeah.
1: And I think uh, there are times that it occurs, you know, we, we disagree with your statement on this and, and sometimes it's, Hey, if I'm the only person who said that, Take it for what it's worth. We're going through a process and especially on uh, first reads or maybe sometimes it's the first read in a caption that we missed it. I mean, we're seeing it for the first time. You know, I I can remember a, a particular show where the cores, the we would get into critique and the staff was always so upset with with the judges, you're not seeing this, you're not seeing this. And we, they didn't realize, and it took me a while to understand what the problem was. We, we thought the focus was supposed to be in one place and they thought the focus was supposed to be in the other place. And because we were focusing on one thing, we were missing what was happening in the other spot. And, you know, that was the point of contention between that core staff and the judges. And when I pointed, when I saw it the third time and I finally got what they were talking about, I went, okay. And we happened to have a critique that night. And when we sat down and went through that, they realized, oh, I get it. Why you weren't getting it. So they actually minimized that other focus thing so that we saw what they wanted them to. And I think it, like you said, if there is a give and take on it, it, that's where it ultimately works to, to the best of both sides. You know, the judges learn something and the courts learn something about the judging process. And that way we can credit you the way you want you want and deserve to be credited.
2: I do find like with, with the top groups, right? Like the groups in the past 10 years that have been in the top three, top four. Uh, I, I do find that judges... Are generally okay and receptive to being educated by the staffs, which is which is cool. And I I, that that's probably a misconception out in the staff in the world as well. Like that, like um, the whole critique is uh, you know judges telling what you did wrong and staffs being mad about it. I, I feel that that there's been a lot of times where judges go, yeah, you know, I didn't think about that, and I'll put that I'll take that on board, and. You hear that tape the next night, and they they've done it. You know, so it does. You know that happens more than what people think. I think,
1: I think you do really go back and reflect on on the critique. I mean, when we get done with the critique, you know, usually the chief judge says, "Hey, were there any issues? Anything that I need to be aware of?" You know, because inevitably, you know, you you go through the the show, you do everything, and you think. You you look at the recap before you walk into the critique, and you're going, hmm, you know who who's going to be upset with me tonight? Inevitably, that's never the core that's upset with you. <laughs> you know, it's kind of that that weird thing. You know, you think, oh man, I, I kind of hammered them; they had a bad show, and and then you know, it's it's another core that that's really upset for some strange reason, and and but typically they're not really upset. You know, they may take issue with one comment um, or something that occurred. But, you know, generally the critiques over the last few years were generally pretty positive. I mean, they, they I think DCI has done a very good job of educating judges, educating the core staffs to make sure that there is a productive element to every critique.
2: There was a brief moment last year. I don't know if you remember this, Monty. I'm not sure. How, how much you were involved last year, where they said only one person in critique because yeah. there, wasn't, there was a situation. And, and that leads to a question that I have for you, Monty. How effective is it, do you think, for staff to be very aggressive in critique?
1: I think it's probably about as effective as uh, trying to convince somebody on Facebook.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah,
1: okay. You know, uh, <laughs> unless you're dealing with somebody who isn't very confident in their own judging ability, I think most judges are open to critique and criticism of, of their process. And we know we are absolutely in that role, not infallible. We are going to, to make mistakes We're we're going to miss stuff. Yeah. Uh, You know uh, you're looking at, at, everything and you're not going to pick up on everything. I think the biggest thing is to be honest about it. I know one of the issues is, you know, you'll say, you'll be in a critique and have some staff members say, well, the last six shows we've been six tenths ahead of this core and you have them one tenth above us tonight in your caption. And then you go back and you look at it. No, you've been trading, <laughs> you know, all those. Yeah. So, yeah just be honest. I mean, if, if I said something different, I'll live up to it.
2: Well, the reason why, you know, I I like some volatility is no one wants to be slotted, right? No one wants to, for the group thing to happen and you to get the bad end of the stick. Uh, You know, there was um, two San Antonio's ago where you have the mid-season judge kind of evaluation moment with the staffs and the task forces there. And, one of the, I think I remember the drum corps, but I'm not say who it is, but it was a younger staff member going, you know, I don't understand why one night content were down to a core by four-tenths, and the next day content were up by four-tenths, and he was trying to say that content should be the same and all this, and it's, you know, and and I said under my breath, and John Meehan was right in front of me because he was about to say something, I said, be careful what you wish for, and he, he heard me, and he's like, exactly right, because, I mean, and I think, uh, I think Blue Devils that year at San Antonio and Brass didn't do too well. And he was like, I hope there's more volatility at the next, there's more inconsistency at the next show. Because the thing about it is, if you want consistency and you ask for that, someone might consistently put you down. And even when I, you know, the, the few times I used to go on Drum Corps Planet and people complain about that from the general public. Again, be careful what you wish for, because you don't yeah. want this, the, the placement and the, and the cores to be the same from night to night, even though there's adjustments in the performance.
1: Right. I mean, if it's consistent, it's slotting. If there's variance, judges don't know what they're doing, and it's a lack of training. Right. You know, yeah. It, yeah. there's there's no way – there there has to be both. There has to be some consistency. I think the yeah. issue is if I give you a number where I'm saying you're in the middle of box four
2: mm-hmm. and the
1: next person comes in and says – you're at the bottom of box four, barely outside of box three. Yeah. That consistency would be unnerving. And and somebody's wrong, probably.
2: Unless
1: there is a mitigating factor to that. Okay. That that's you know, the person who says you're now box three is you just you just added fifty two pages of drill changes um to your show and it wasn't the greatest performance um because the kids really didn't have it under their feet okay then then that's appropriate and as a staff you can process it but the person on drum corps planet that didn't know that information and didn't see either of those two shows has no idea
2: yeah you know after we start in 2018 we started tallying up the uh bullet points the points of comparison on the uh on the sheets and and telling judges where they were deficient or where their pet peeve and talked about only this. And we put that in our judge evaluations to John Phillips. I think we were heard because in 19 it was way better when we got balanced approaches. And that's, that's probably where the inconsistency other than the performance or the read can happen is people not taking a balanced approach to the sheet and only talking about what and not the how or vice versa, uh, absolutely, and that that sort of thing. And that, you know, when when I go into critique and I feel uh, like the judge could have done a better job, that's what I talk about. I try not to talk about well, you know, two nights ago, so and so who's been judging forever put us up, and or I, I try to talk. I try to go to the sheet and talk about where was the. Uh, lack of balance and approach from the sheet standpoint
1: and i think the brass you know the field captions should have more volatility to them Absolutely. than the upstairs because you're upstairs you're in a press box you're seeing the whole thing if i'm seeing you two nights in a row in on the field i may what one one show make a conscious effort to stay more in the a side of the field and the second show have a conscious effort to stay more in the B side of the field so that I am intentionally getting a different sample.
2: Yep.
0: So Monty, do you have any tips for younger staff members that are new to the critique process?
1: Um, I think one is make sure that you have talked to people who have gone through the critique process that are veterans of it. Um, How to approach, you know, being able to come into a judge and say, Hey, one, the first thing is you better have listened to the tape. (laughs) Um, You know, we just spent 13, 14 minutes telling you all sorts of information that we saw during the show. And the first thing I would come in with is with what questions do you have after listening to that tape? What things did you think we did well? What things did you think we missed in the show? And if we, especially if we make a comment... You know, I'd love to talk to you about this and critique because I'm missing something you know I don't understand why this transition is the way it is or if we're missing something then make sure you cover that aspect in in, in that but also get to get to know who the other person is a little bit you know because I, I think that really does help the process uh, I know there are a couple of course staffs who give their younger staff members, kind of a bio of who who the judge is, just so they have an idea of what their background is. You know, I, I had a fr- friend who, uh, who kind of set up one of his younger staff members in a critique once, just so that he could make a point about how to handle a critique. Because I think it, you want it to be a positive experience. I mean, uh, as an educator, I, I want to do a good job and teach young staff members. And as an educator, I want to learn. I want to be a better judge every time I go through a process. So I, I think uh, being prepared for a critique and just not coming in, you see that a lot with some younger staffs is they don't know how to approach critique. They don't have a plan coming in. And it's like, OK, we're in critique can you talk to us for five minutes? You
0: know, or they come in and they say, so what'd you think?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Well, I I told you already what I thought in real time. So now, you know, I I think that's the, the biggest thing. You want it to be productive. And when it's not productive, that's where it's kind of frustrating as a judge is when you can't make it productive. And sometimes productive is resolving a conflict and that's okay.
2: I'm reminded of this. uh, It was uh, David ate a lot a few years ago and I was upset with him and uh, I, I think I was professional, but uh, you know, it was, it was intense. And, and I was, you know, like I said, I was, I was upset. And last year I saw him again and he had a great, it was a great tape, you know, and uh, I told him, you know, I told him so at critique and, and I said, uh, and I was trying to be friendly with him. And it's like, yeah, I think it's the second time I've seen you. And uh, last time I saw you, it was a couple of years ago in uh, Murfreesboro. And he looked at me and goes, yeah, I can't, rem- can't remember if that was fun or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we had a good laugh about it. And, uh, you know, so that's, it, it's, it's always great when you could kind of be a personable uh, with the judge on that level. You know, even if you have a initial meeting of not too fun.
1: Well, and I think one of the things that happens is we're on different sides of the coin during the summer, but I'm going to judge with you in a marching band show in a fall or something like that. So I think it's always fun to kind of have those, as I call them, water cooler type conversations when you're not in the heat of the moment and you get to learn about each other. And that way, when I make a comment on a tape, you know where I'm coming from. And so there's less chance for it to be taken the wrong way. If it's in a, well, I could have worded it slightly different to be clearer, but you know, you're in the middle of the, you're in the middle of a show and you're trying to, to get away from a gong roll and avoid, you know, the color guard charging at you. And you're not always thinking uh, exactly what, the best words would be to use at that moment. Um, So sometimes you say it not in a kind of a clunky way that out of context, it, it probably wasn't the right set of words, but you try to do your best on that.
0: So Monty, you talked about preparation. Do you keep notes on the cores that you judge?
1: Um, Typically in a year, you know, each core is supposed to submit a uh, kind of a spiel sheet, that is given to the judges. It g- usually talks about a show concept, everything else. And in many cases, it gives us uh, the source material. Usually we're, we're supposed to get that in a season, sometime around Memorial Day. So typically Memorial Day was, uh, I'd load up my uh, iTunes account with about $100 worth of downloads of stuff. And, and that way I could start learning the source material for each core. So you have that. And then I typically would print out all. I kept, always kept a folder of those spiel sheets and, and the core information. So usually in the hotel before, or on the plane flight, I would pull all those out and review them the day of the contest. So that I knew specifically a comment about an individual core during the season, not as much Because I I think that has a tendency to make you not judge the show of the night, um, which you were supposed to be doing. I, I was, as a younger judge, very conscious of, oh, if I saw this core again, were they better? Were they worse? And I was evaluating that core against their previous performance, not evaluating the show of the night. And so I stopped doing that. And when I stopped doing that, I think I did a better job of judging. And if I went went back and looked at my scores, generally if they were better, they got a higher number. You know, occasionally the show dynamics would dictate something different, but generally, I it made me a better judge. So I try not to. If there was something that, like Derek says, hey, we want you to look at this. We didn't felt feel like you commented on this area or we didn't get commentary on that area. I would write that down to make sure I did address that because I know the cores were going to remember those, those kind of things. If they had asked, they asked me to do something specific, but other than that, I don't even look at numbers or spreads, you know, of what I've judged previously. In fact, you know, before a show, I try not to look at anything numeric from that standpoint. I just go back and review the, the, sheets and the boxes and where everything should be
0: awesome well do either of you have any final thoughts that uh you'd like to address on this topic
2: i have a question for for money uh we're talking about um this came up a little bit when we're talking about judging from the field when there's electronics and it is in the in the guidelines that you are allowed and should in regards to like style and articulation judge what comes out of the speakers but obviously you can't judge necessarily tone because uh, it might be altered uh, and there was a lot a lot of discussion and then it just kind of pivoted to from there should we even be bothering with field judges for brass anymore with this and so i was just curious as to your opinion this is always a hot topic, so you know we want a lot of listeners. So what is your opinion on field judges on the brass? should they be taken off the field?
1: I, I think there's there is something tangible about having a judge that close to the performers from a sampling standpoint. if If we were going to remove the judges, the brass judges from the field altogether, we would have to totally rewrite the sheet. Um, Kind of the way percussion one, percussion two did in that process, because the evaluation process is totally different. I mean, there's a couple of times early season where they do the five judge panel and they said, "Okay, brass judges upstairs. It was just the, the sheet and the philosophy of judging the sheet was was so different. I'll be very honest. My favorite place to judge a core is on the field. I, I love being on the field with the performers. You feel that energy. You get that sense of energy and and, and joy that, that you get when somebody is on. My favorite judging experiences are being on the field when somebody is on. Those are the ones I remember and can go back to and say, I was on the field with this. And I was just like, that was amazing to be there.
0: Do you have any specific show that stands out to you in your judging career?
1: There's a couple. uh, I judged quarterfinals in what, 2005? And it was kind of strange because, uh, you know, ironically, in 2005, I think it was 2005, it was the cadets when they did the uh, Dancer in the Dark show. Um, That was quarterfinals was literally the first time I judged them. I had never seen them the entire year and to be on the field with them in that show, they were just, they were on, they were just amazing during that time. Uh, I think one of the, one of the, the spots I remember uh, 2003 Cavaliers spin cycle and some of the things that they did on the field, you were just in awe of what they did. Carolina Crown, the first, the year that they did Angel, being out on the field with them when you realized how far apart those performers were, and hearing the rubato that was going on, and there was such a tangible energy from those performers. Blue Devils' year they did the Fellini show was just, you know, they they knew how to perform. That that was a core that just. Every time you saw them, you knew that they were going to throw down, you know. And then, uh, uh, probably my favorite Bluecoats experience was being on the field during him of axiom, because when you finally the core finally pulled together from the the two ends of the field and finally got together, that was that was fun to be on the field in that in that space with the performers because they just you know, knocked it out of the park.
2: For uh, next summer, Monty, are you planning on going uh, to any uh, critiques from the other side for, for your team?
1: Well, basically what I did this year with the corps is I just kind of watched, I kind of stood in the background and kind of watched critique, watched how our staff handled things. Sometimes there was one show we were just so short on staff because it was kind of a, a situation where we were in the process of shifting staff and some people were already on their airport run and that kind of stuff that uh i ended up jumping in on critique <laughs> for one of them which was which was interesting um you know fortunately it was talking with to wayne dillon so it wasn't uh you know yeah. uh, that big of a deal <laughs> so somebody i certainly have, I'm have...
2: about the show <laughs> yeah
1: well but i think that's it you know like the those couple of years we did the the everybody did the 15 minute critiques Oh my God. The first five minutes was talk about tonight's show. And then the next five minutes was talk about what the whole vision of the core program was. And then the last five minutes was talking about our kids and you know, what restaurants we've gone to recently and stuff like that. It just, uh, it wasn't as productive as, as everybody had hoped that the in-depth approach would be because you know, I mean, I think if it it would have stayed around for four or five years and everybody would developed how to how to make it productive. But I think it would it just never floated.
0: Well, thank you to both of you for joining us uh, this week on our discussion about brass adjudication in DCI.
2: Thank you. Thanks, Bob. It's fun. Thanks, Bonnie.
0: Well, that wraps it up for another episode. Don't forget to vote in the current round for our Best Bluecoat Ballad Contest, and please check back every other Monday for a new episode of the Bluecoats Brass Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Bluecoats Brass Podcast. Please tell your friends about our podcast, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. If you have any topics you'd like to suggest or questions for us to answer in future episodes, please email us at brasspodcast at brasspodcastbluecoats.com. You can catch us on Instagram at Bluecoats or at Blue Brass, spelled B L O O Brass. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at the handle Bluecoats. To learn more about the Bluecoats organization and all of its offerings, visit us on the web at Bluecoats.com. Our podcast is made possible in part from the support of Hammond Design, the official mouthpiece designer and manufacturer of the Bluecoats Drum and Bugle Corps. As a performance partner of the Bluecoats, we trust HD with our sound, and we think you should, too. Learn more at carlhammonddesign.com to get started. That's Carl with a K, hammonddesign.com.